I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Everything is broken. That's the theory that Tablet Magazine's editor-in-chief, Alana Newhouse, has been testing. That the very institutions that have produced and protected American life are now, all at once, laying bare their critical faults. The university, medicine, the media, government, law, justice, religion. And so she believes the most vital debate in America today is not between left and right, liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican, but rather between those who believe there's something fundamentally broken in America and those who do not. Alana, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Welcome to In These Times. Thank you so much. First of all, I have to tell you that I think the magazine, the website that you've established is just terrific. It's a fantastic contribution to Jewish life. It goes deep into issues that conventional Jewish media might not address, or at least not in that depth. So first of all, Alana, congratulations. How do you see Tablet? Is it fulfilling its original creation and its original intention? What is its role in the Jewish community? Wow. Um, You know, Tablet was started 15 years ago. The last 15 years have been a time of change in American society and Jewish life. And so nothing that we started out with, not the technologies, not the principles, and not even the goals in some senses are the same. But that said, there are through lines. And one of the through lines, obviously, is that a lot of the staff is the same. So that's that's fun. But when we launched Tablet, I had been the culture editor at The Forward for seven or eight years before that. To be honest, I thought I was done with Jewish journalism. I was sort of maybe even done with journalism. I wanted to go to India, do yoga for a while, and ended up coming and working on the website of a nonprofit called Nextbook. And we decided to launch Tablet as a kind of reinvigorated version of the website that they had at the foundation. At the time, there were two circulatory systems that I thought we were building Tablet on top of both of which I assumed were quite healthy. One of which was sort of a circulatory system of American Jewish communal life. What we all know, day schools, camps, shuls, Hillel's, Federation, these interlocking organizations that created the establishment of American Jewish life and into which one could inject ideas and have them circulate. And what's the difference that you wanted to bring to the table with Tablet? There were two different kinds of media that covered Jewish life. There was Jewish, traditional Jewish outlets, which candidly often approached their subject with deep knowledge, kindredness, and warmth, but maybe not the standards of what I saw as great, American newspapers and magazines. Certainly not the standards of objective reporting. Again, there are exceptions all over the place. But in general, the universe was one of connection and warmth, but not necessarily the distance that one brings or the objectivity that one brings and certainly like the standards of particularly magazine journalism that I had come to feel connected to. 
the other outlets that would cover Jewish life were general interest outlets, The Times, New York Magazine, The New Yorker, which, of course, did bring the standards of great magazine and newspaper journalism, but none of the warmth and in many cases, no knowledge. (laughs) And we're getting things very wrong out of a lack of any real experience or wisdom about any of the operative people, principles, history of that world. So I wanted to exist in the Venn diagram of those two. The other circulatory system that I thought I was building tablet on top of was the circulatory system of American journalism. This kind of pyramid of newspapers, magazines, local papers, radio stations, television stations, and at the time blogs and emerging websites, which seemed like a healthy ecosystem. What I did not realize at the time was that both of those circulatory systems for messaging and information and knowledge, both the American Jewish communal structure as well as American journalism, were both decaying. And I was building something on quicksand. And part of what is amazing about being a journalist, it's what has always been amazing if you did journalism right and what will always be amazing if you do it right, is that even in the worst times, you're learning about your world as you do your job. And so we were learning about how the world underfoot was changing as we were reporting on it, which allowed us to make changes to Tablet and how we understood the world, how we covered it, and also how we engaged with our readers. I became really connected to readers, pockets of readers. Any reader who ever wrote to me like, became a regular correspondent for me. So we have these cohorts of readers who began talking to us, and we still do. And you glean from them, right? The spirit and even the content of what's going on in the community that you couldn't necessarily glean from any other source. Yes, and in a way, um, it made us like a local newspaper, which I love because one of the best parts of local journalism is the way that you can be incredibly enmeshed with your readers and with the people who you're reporting on and you're reporting for. Being connected to our readers in this really high touch way allowed me to feel like Tablet was almost a local newspaper for global jury. And how has it all worked out? Have you fulfilled your ambitions? Well, I guess nobody fully fulfills their ambitions, but are you in the lane that you expected of yourself? And do you feel like you're making this substantial contribution to Jewish life? I hope we are. I think part of what the job of journalism when done right is, is to mirror back at people, show them what their lives are like so that they can change the parts that don't feel right. They can preserve the parts that do feel like they look like what they want their lives to be. That mirroring function, though, in part depends on how successfully you can engage with readers every day that you wake up, right? Every day I have to do that action and perform that task. And sometimes we do it right, but we also 
sometimes do it wrong. What's great and what I find invigorating is that when we do it wrong, our readers tell us. So it's a dance. You wrote this seminal essay called Everything is Broken, and you received so much attention, national attention for that. In the context of the pandemic and looking at American society, you included in this brokenness not only the Jewish community, but American society in general, key institutions that we rely on. How do you think the pandemic has impacted, first, on American society, and second, on the Jewish community? Systems can be challenged, and they can experience stress in ways that you don't see or don't detect until that system is called upon to act or to be engaged. And the failures become obvious. And this, the strain that that system was under starts to become, they, they start to become too overt to ignore. Like, for example, we always thought that the CDC was the gold standard of medicine, and we discovered that when we had this stressful pandemic, it wasn't everything we expected it to be. Is that what you mean? Perfect example. Perfect example. Now, if you talk to anyone who has done any work, for example, in the field of rare diseases or medical research, they will tell you that the federal institutions that are engaged in the universe of medical research and health have been under strain for quite some time. Even people who are not fierce critics of them will talk about the ways in which they're uh, failing and they feel like they're decaying or deteriorating or becoming corrupted and that it's been obvious to those people who've been working in them for decades at this point. But why would I, who, who doesn't come in contact with the CDC necessarily, why would I ever see that? How would I ever know? There's no way until, of course, it comes directly into my home. And now I have to rely on those places that I thought were reliable. So what else do you mean? What are the key institutions that, in your view, are broken and perhaps the pandemic or just the uh, continuing march of time might have exposed or accelerated more of their decay. I had a friend who who said to me in the wake of some in some of the pieces that I'd been writing over the last few years, Alana, how is it possible that all of these institutions, which all were founded at different points in history, all started to fail at the same point? What's your monocausal theory here, right? It's technology. <laughs> we, and not only that, but there's a very good example of this happening in a not so distant past, which is the Industrial Revolution. When you have an economic revolution that changes the heart of how we produce what we produce as humans, and then how we inevitably how we message and interact with each other, you are going to change every aspect of society. The cascading effect of that seemingly small but ultimately radical change is going to be comprehensive. In the case of technology, I think, you know, the technological revolution, we all kind of thought we were just getting email. <laughs> like We didn't realize we were fundamentally changing every aspect of our life, our society, our communities. And what that meant was that every single institution 
and I mean this from the, the most local, your bodega, all the way up to health insurance companies, every single one of those institutions had to absorb the onslaught of technology and adjust to it. Embrace it, use it, not use it, let it take you over completely. Every single institution in life in our society had to face the change that technology forced upon it. Some of those institutions have adjusted well and have embraced technology in just the right amounts, in just the right ways. And those that technology has enabled it to grow and deepen what it does. Like tablet, right? Correct. Correct. Which is completely online. There, There is no paper tablet, right? It's, it's all online. Right. And the New York Times, too. They developed this huge online subscription. And I think you think that the New York Times is one of those institutions that's broken, but they actually did take advantage of the technology of the time, right? Sure, but let's get into it, right? So technology isn't only the internet. Technology, in the case of media, was also social media. And I would venture to argue that the New York Times, in its approach to how it allowed its reporters to use particularly Twitter, was quite toxic. And toxic not only for the institution of the New York Times, but also for the entire journalistic landscape of which it had been a figurehead. I think social media has been quite very destructive for the practice of journalism. Destructive for the practice that was. Now we'll build something new. I'm not saying it's the end of the world. It's just the end of the world that we knew. But it, it did do that. The analogy that I use a lot with technologies and ideas is radioactivity. You know, Radioactivity in the right doses handled responsibly can cure cancer. In the wrong doses, it burns everything to the ground. When you decide to take in a new technology, you have to be able to experiment and play responsibly. You have to be white knuckling that. You can't just let it come in and wash over you and embrace everything and let it ride because it will eat you. And it will burn everything to the ground if you're not handling it, if you're not the one in charge. And I think that many media outlets almost got a little drunk on the kind of growth that the internet could conceivably give them. The expanded, the number of eyeballs, which we all heard about, number of eyeballs, number of eyeballs. I mean, we heard about it for two decades. It was a drug. And it made the universe of journalism get very disconnected from humans, made them get very insular. There are a lot of forces there, but I think that that's one of them. And so do you mean that it kind of siloed us? We ended up reading only what we wanted to read and what other people, like-minded people, wanted us to read who are part of our universe? Yes. And so then the newspapers gave what their readers wanted to see. Yes, but also... There's also two other things which I think maybe are even more problematic and more operative, which is that the universe of journalism, the practitioners of journalism became their own community and they were writing for other journalists. They weren't writing for readers. And a great example from our world, which is a truly seminal piece, was Maddie Friedman's piece for Tablet probably 10 years ago now about how the media covers Israel. And Maddie, who had been at the Associated Press, 
He takes you in to how the AP, other wire services and journalistic outlets that cover global affairs, how they make their editorial decisions. So he really takes you into the sausage making factory of global affairs journalism. And he talks about the hive mind of journalists and the way in which Israel does and does not feed into what the machine that makes global news needs. And part of that is really the creation of this separate community of journalists writing for other journalists, as opposed to journalists writing for readership and feeling connected to the readership. To me, that's a, a real problem that social media exacerbated. And I'm not so sure. I think a lot of journalistic outlets in some senses, they almost saw the readers as incidental. Like those were just eyes, you know, all the eyes, the eyes, those were eyes to get. But it weren't, they weren't people to talk to. And it's not really, I'm not, I'm not laying blame at the feet of those journalists, many of whom I think are great. I do think that there is leadership in the entire industry that was completely lacking. Talk to us about the universities. What's broken in universities? I can tell you that I have a very large congregation. I deal all the time with young adults who are graduating from high school and their parents. And it seems to me that they consider the top universities still to be a critical component of the rest of their lives. I guess the first thing that I would do is I would broaden out the context as wide as we could get. What is the state of the American economy right now? What are the jobs the parents imagine their kids are going to have? Because, like, for example, when I was growing up, lots of parents wanted me and my friends to become lawyers. And there was a huge universe of white shoe law firms. You know, you go, you do well in college, then you take the LSAT, then you go to a good law school, then you get your internship, and then you become an associate. And, then, and there was just this very straight path that made enormous sense. Go and read any article about the state of law firms right now. It's not good. The jobs in many cases are not there and that universe is getting smaller. So it's important to understand that because if that's the destination, then the university is supposed to be a pathway. But where is it leading to anymore? Isn't it still the case that if you want to be an influential or leading voice, that's what we mean by success? And if you mean success in that way, isn't it still the case that you need a university degree? And the better the university's reputation, the better for you, both in terms of how you're received and viewed by potential employers, as well as the network that you establish in these elite institutions of higher learning. Part of Jewish history has been about seeing around corners. So even if I admit that that may be true in certain precincts, and by the way, I actually could argue against that even increasingly. I know very large names in Silicon Valley, names that you would know, who don't hire college graduates anymore. They do not want people who have gone, who have had their brains made into mush by our institutions. But that said, let's assume I said that that's even true still. The question for people who have children now is, is it going to be true in five years? 
Is it going to be true in 10 years? I think that at the very least, it is important, it's imperative for Jews to ask themselves that question. Not what am I used to and does that still exist today, Wednesday, but what's going to exist in two months, in four years, in 20 years? And how do we build a Jewish community and an American society for that moment? Not for the one that we're holding on to so tightly because it's what we know. So take, for example, journalism. When you look at journalists, do you consider journalists who never went to journalism school? I imagine that you probably do, but do you look at journalists who never went to university at all? Absolutely. That's really interesting. It's actually surprising to me. Absolutely. I believe that, especially in journalism, that credentialing is effectively pointless. The fact that you've gone to an Ivy League university at this point doesn't even tell me that you can put together a grammatically correct sentence. And is that because the universities have failed and even before the universities, the schools have failed? Right. And again, I, I, you know, we, we published a piece a few years ago about Fieldston, and it was about the challenges at that school, struggling with anti-Israel sentiment from certain corners that was bleeding into what some parents felt was overt anti-Semitism and the sidelining of Jewish students from school life. And the most important part of that piece, it seemed to me, the piece talked about the fact that a lot of these private schools in New York City were experiencing the same challenge and that they were all engaging in the embrace of intersectionality and some of the principles of politics that many Jewish parents had felt made Jews feel unwelcome or or sidelined or worse. And I would add harmful to Jews in the long run. Jews never do well when those ideologies prevail, right? Right. The central premise of the piece, which is so important, is the job of these high schools is to get your kids into those Ivy League universities. If the Ivy League university is embracing intersectionality, it is the job of those high schools to teach your kids the principles that they need to get into those universities. And if the law firms or the medical schools that they want to get into take as fundamental values those ideas, the university has to teach them. So it is a daisy chain here. And it is impossible, I think it's impossible, to isolate one row or one one little clip in that chain without looking at what's happening to the whole pipeline. And I know that this is very stressful. And I understand this creates enormous anxiety because as a parent, it's enough to be worried about college. It's enough to be worried about where your kid's gonna go in September. I'm now telling you, you actually have to worry about America. <laughs> but I wanna say that I think that if you look at the problem that is really there, you become less anxious and it becomes less stressful. I want to press you on that because I know a lot of attorneys. I'm an attorney. We have friends who are attorneys. My wife is an attorney. We have a lot of lawyers in this congregation. I love lawyers. And based on what you said, I I know that the 
top firms only look at the elite universities, and not only that, the top firms only recruit from the top of the class of elite universities, the top 10%. They don't even look at the bottom 90% of even the elite universities. So isn't it the case that if a high school student has ambitions to be an attorney, that it's justifiable for them to want to get into an Ivy League school, and once they're there to work hard, and then graduate at or near the top of their class? If you are a Jewish kid from New York City who is likely to be labeled white, and worse, if you're male, if you happen to squeak by and get into Harvard, do you know how good you have to be now to not just get into Harvard, but to then get into the law school and then get into that law firm as somebody labeled white and male? I think we should tell kids the truth. If that's what you want, if you have a child who really desperately wants to be a partner at Sullivan Cromwell, great, no problem. Let's just be honest with them that that path is not as easy for them as it would have been 10 years ago or 20 years ago even. It's okay. If that's your path, that's what you want for your kids, that's fine. But let's just admit that the landscape we're looking at now doesn't look anything like what it did. I feel the same way about anti-Israel sentiment on certain college campuses. I have a friend who's very involved in campus activation, gives a lot of money, actually, to activists on campus to fight BDS votes. And on this particular campus, the BDS vote was, it, it failed by one vote. They poured so much money, so much time, so much energy, and... They activated these kids, these Jewish kids on campus to win by one vote. And this person looked at me and said, what do you think? And I said, I think you should stop. <laughs> this thing is going to eventually pass. And what you're doing is you're exhausting these kids and you're making them believe that their world is not what it is. Let them see it. It's okay. You want to send your kid to Columbia because that kid wants to become an engineer. Great. You're going to school to become an engineer. You're going to see a lot of anti-Israel stuff. Some of it may even bleed into anti-Semitism. It's going to be part of your life. You're going for the engineering degree. Go and enjoy that. Get what you can out of it. What bothers me is the idea that parents look at these places as though they're replacement families or replacement communities. And they want those kids to feel and they tell those kids that they're going to feel completely comfortable with their Jewishness on these campuses. And they're not. That feels irresponsible to me. So tell me about the Jewish community. How are we doing in the Jewish community? Are we broken? And is the Jewish establishment one of those establishments that's broken? And if so, how do you see our future? There isn't one Jewish community. There never has been. That was one of the things that I think I got wrong early on. I've been trying to encourage people to get very specific when you think about brokenism or brokenness. I don't want you to look at things and say, I'm checking out or everything should get burned to the ground, right? I want you to look at specific institutions and say, 
this specific entity, is it too far gone? Can it be fixed? Is it in really good shape? Make a decision about each institution. That's, I think, what's happening in American Jewish life and American Jewish communal life. Every single institution is being judged, whether it knows it or not, and whether the people that are part of it know if they're doing it or not. People are sussing out whether or not the institution feels like it's reflective of them and their values and like it's a vehicle for them to bring those values into the world, make those values deeper and richer. Some institutions are going to fail that test and other institutions are going to maybe just pass, pass enough. And other institutions are going to grow enormously. And one of the fun things about being able to observe American Jewish life right now is I almost can't predict it. Well, let me ask you specifically about something that I do. Attend to the institution of the synagogue. Mm -hmm. I believe the synagogue is the prerequisite Jewish institution that will be responsible for Jewish continuity. It's not that the other institutions aren't important. There are many, many institutions that play a critical role in Jewish life, but it's inconceivable to me that we can sustain Jewish continuity in the absence of synagogues. And not only a synagogue, but we need strong, vital, vibrant, compelling synagogues. So how are we doing? In your view, how is the institution of the synagogue doing? Well, you know, I don't want to blow sunshine up your tallis or anything, but I really think this is about people and specifically about rabbis. I think that if we were sitting here 10 or 15 years ago, I might have a different conversation about the synagogue because I think there would have been enough American Jews who had experience that related to the institution of the synagogue as an institution of their lives. And back then I would have said that that institution had become distant and a little irrelevant, a, a holder of some sense of authority or legitimacy, but not one that people emotionally felt connected to. And one that most people actually couldn't articulate how they currently need it. Now, I feel we're almost farther along on that path. And especially after COVID, I think that there are a lot of people, particularly people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, who are now wondering if the synagogue isn't a, a place that they should be bringing back into their lives. One of the instruments of enormous power right now are humans. I think that there are certain rabbis that are connecting very deeply with people. People are looking for moral leadership and they're finding it in certain people. When that, when a rabbi can actually show people how to translate their attachment and reliance on him or her into an attachment to the institution as a whole, that synagogue thrives. And you say that irrespective really of the depth or the scope of one's religious beliefs, that do you think it's almost incidental to the act of affiliating with a Jewish institution or a synagogue? Is that right? Yeah. 
I don't believe the denominations are have any real relevance anymore. Meaning I don't believe that the distinctions are the distinctions that are alive for people. I meet reformed Jews who, when they talk, if I wrote it down, you might imagine they were an Orthodox Jew. I meet Orthodox Jews who, if I wrote down what they said, you would think they were completely unaffiliated. I don't know that the denominations as labels actually tell us anything about what's going on in people's hearts and minds right now. Which so as a result, when somebody says to me, well, oh, that's shul, that's reform. That doesn't tell me anything about it. I literally have no idea what that means. Tell me who that rabbi is and tell me that rabbi's connection to those congregants. And that will start to give me a better impression of what's going on for that institution and that community. The labels are, they simply, they're just, they're not helpful anymore. When you say community, you know, that strikes me deeply because one of the devastations of COVID was that it shut off completely this element of community. Synagogues, in my view, are fundamentally community centers. It's where the community comes to interact one with the other. And what we did, and I think we did a really good job at the beginning of the pandemic, most of us across the board in North America converted as quickly as possible to virtual interaction. We changed everything. Everything became online. And I think we did a good job at that. We gave people what they really wanted, religious services, even pastoral attention right in their living rooms. But I think the downside of that is in some way we broke the habit of people actually coming into the community. And if the people do not come into the community in the long run, it's impossible to sustain a community center. It's almost as if we convinced ourselves, we lulled ourselves into thinking that we can establish virtual congregations when in fact a virtual relationship is very flat and very dissatisfying. So what is that what you mean when you talk to us about what people are looking for, especially post-pandemic? Is that the kind of community they're looking for? Are they looking for an easy way out or are they looking to actually engage physically and are they looking for deep moral values? Are they looking for Jewish spirituality or something else? During COVID, a reader wrote in to me about his synagogue going virtual and said, you know, if I wanted a Zoom lecture about Black Lives Matter, there are a lot of better places doing that. It was a good comment, right? Because he was basically saying, what do I get out of this that I can't get better somewhere else? So there's a way in which you look at it. And again, this is not about how synagogues and moral leadership encompasses lots of different things. But if it doesn't, as a first principle, give people a connection to Judaism, it isn't going to compete. It's not going to be important in their lives. It's important because it's doing something different, not because it's doing something that's the same. And I I just want to say that I, I felt so struck during COVID by 
you're in the middle of a pandemic. I think whatever decisions people made those first few months, especially, they, they don't matter. They could be forgiven. Some of the decisions were good. Some of them were bad. That's okay, right? Because we're all stumbling in the dark in the midst of a international emergency. The one impulse that I did see that bothered me was the impulse to demonize people who questioned a majority view about how Jewish institutions should function. So there were people who said, what if closing this synagogue and going virtual breaks my connection to it? There were people who said that because they were orthodox and they need to be inside of a shul. They may have said it because they were older. They may have said it because they had a disability. They may have said it because they were lonely and shul was their connection to human beings. There were a lot of institutions whose reaction was to cover their ears when people said that. I think that was wrong. And I think that we needed to listen to those people. They had wisdom to give us about the long-term effects of the decisions that we were making in those moments. One final question before we run out of time. Are you optimistic about the future of American Jewry? It's really hard to study Jewish history and not be both the fiercest pessimist and the most unending optimist. But if I had to choose, at the end of every day, I, I go to sleep an optimist. I am. On that note, Alana, thank you very much for spending this time with us. Keep writing, keep pressing us, keep challenging, keep hiring those amazing journalists that are part of Tablet. And for sure, we'll continue to read everything you write. Thank you so much. I'm filled with admiration for Alana Newhouse and her colleagues at Tablet. Under Alana's leadership, they have built and nurtured a highly influential and successful online magazine. The writers are top-notch, and the issues they cover are critical for us as Americans and American Jews. Tablet purposely addresses controversial topics and dilemmas. They take the Jewish community seriously. Their respect, admiration, and love for Judaism are evident in every sentence, whether in a piece on Jewish wisdom or a provocative editorial. Alana knows that the point is not to write something with which everyone agrees. Why do that? For what purpose? Rather, the point is to give exposure to often underreported but critical communal challenges and moral crises to make people think, and eventually, perhaps, to modify individual and communal behavior. Anyone who writes for Tablet, whether the staff journalists or guest writers, knows that this is a forum that is at the very top of its game. Tablet now occupies a vital place in American Jewish discourse. If you care about Jewish life and do not read Tablet, you should. You don't know what you're missing. It's just a click away. You don't have to agree with everything in its pages. Trust me, you won't. But open your mind. Be prepared to learn, to be moved, to be stimulated, and to be provoked. Alana's essay on brokenness continues to ripple out from Tablet and make waves in American society. I was especially interested in her understanding of the performance of essential American Jewish institutions, particularly synagogues. All of us need outside observers and constructive critics to let us know how we're doing. 
We ourselves are usually too close and too committed to our specific way of doing things to get a good read on our current functioning, let alone identify future challenges just beginning to come into focus. Alana's views, as well as those of her learned colleagues at Tablet, are highly prized by me because I know that these are people who love the Jewish community and they are among our deepest thinkers and keenest observers. They are our friends who seek our success, even, perhaps especially, when they criticize those of us in the Jewish establishment. I've always felt that from the perspective of Jewish continuity, synagogues are the indispensable American Jewish institution. We should be investing in them many more resources than we currently do. There are, of course, hundreds of Jewish organizations in this country, and for argument's sake, I'm prepared to concede that none of them is broken, and every last one of them fulfills an important role. But when it comes to Jewish continuity, the American synagogue is the one institution we cannot do without. If it breaks, so will the American Jewish community. Of all the many agencies instilling Jewish literacy, cultivating Jewish identity, and advancing Jewish continuity, synagogues are the most important of all. While Jewish day schools and summer camps are our partners in creating strong Jewish identities, the fact of the matter is that most American Jews will not engage with them. Most American Jews will receive their Jewish education and develop Jewish identities either from synagogues or not at all. And if not at all, they are unlikely as adults to contribute to all the other organizations serving the interests and feeding the vitality of the American Jewish community. That is why the success of the American synagogue is in the vital interest of the broad Jewish community. Our success is everyone's success. Our failure will deplete and hollow out American Jewry. There are no alternatives to synagogues in terms of instilling Jewish literacy, building Jewish identity, and ensuring Jewish continuity. In Israel there are, because Jewish identity and Jewish continuity are built through daily living in the Jewish state and Jews mostly interacting with other Jews. But outside of Israel, to deplete the vitality of synagogues is to deplete the entire American Jewish community a generation from now. Moreover, since 90% of American Jews define themselves as something other than Orthodox, our community has a critical stake in the success of non-Orthodox synagogues. I take Alana's point that movement labels are not as helpful as they were in the 20th century. She's right about that. But it is still the case that most American Jews have not, are not, and will not be Orthodox. We need to find ways to better engage these Jews. The question for them is not what label of Judaism they will use to describe themselves, but whether they will be Jewish or not. Will their children be Jewish? How will the Jewish community reverse widespread Jewish illiteracy, disengagement, and disaffiliation? This is American Jewry's central challenge. Everything else flows from this. Our future well-being depends on it. We are facing monumental challenges. I think Alana is right that the information age, the advent of the most powerful technology we have ever seen, that will become ever more powerful in the coming years, this has fundamentally changed society. We can't really grasp how, but we feel, we intuit, that the information age will usher in dramatic social, political, economic, religious, and cultural upheaval. Institutions are laboring to adjust. The speed and comprehensiveness of these changes are unprecedented. 
Political parties, governments, schools, universities, economic and legal systems, religious institutions are all in flux and struggling to make sense of our times. We have a general feeling of dysfunction, dislocation, and instability. But herein lay enormous potential. People are in search, if not of answers, at least of ways to understand our era and address its unique challenges. We're looking for moral stability. In these times of the rapid advance of unprecedentedly powerful technology, we realize that our moral progress must keep pace, lest our scientific capacities outstrip our moral capacities at the price of the collapse of the very institutions we rely on to ensure stability, security, and well-being. I am awake to the challenges, but remain highly optimistic. The American Jewish community is filled with creative, intelligent, capable, and articulate leaders. And Judaism has a genius for adopting new approaches and adapting new responses to changing times. It is one of the main reasons we are still around. And we will still be around a century from now. We've been together now for two seasons. If you've enjoyed listening and want even more Jewish substance, I hope you'll pick up a copy of my new book, The Lilac Tree, a collection of my thoughts developed over the past 20 years on life and death, science and faith, politics and morality, the past and the future. It's just been published, and it's available now wherever you can get your books online. If you have a chance to read it, send me an email at ahirsch at swfs.org and let me know what you think. Until next time, this is In These Times.